This special episode of the Danger Close podcast is brought to you by Red Sky Morning, the seventh novel in the James Reese Terminalist series. It is coming in hot on May 14th in hardcover, ebook, and audiobook. Go to officialjackcar.com to pre order your copy today. Welcome to the Danger Close podcast. My guest today, Peter Zion. He is the geopolitical strategist and the author of four books, including The Accidental Superpower and The End of the World is Just the Beginning. And now, without further ado, Peter Zion. Peter, thank you for joining me. This is awesome. I really appreciate you taking the time because I know how busy you are, always jetting around, uh, doing your thing. I don't know how you find time to do so many videos on YouTube that are so informative. Melatonin. and is that it? Yeah. You get to sleep at night? Or what exactly. Do you do? Yeah. I, I is your brain sleep solid. Always, is your brain just constantly working? Yeah. My brain works whenever the world is on fire. And that's pretty much all the time these days. Oh, yeah. That, that definitely keeps you, keep you busy. Um, but it is amazing how you can do those just on your hike uh, every morning. You just yank, what did you see? And got that phone and just pretty much whatever's yep. interesting that, that day, whatever you saw on the news that morning type of a thing. When I can, yeah. Sometimes we record ones that have a little bit more of a shelf like. So we did a geopolitics of the future series that's closing down now. Uh, but yeah, yeah. There's uh, plenty of things going on. We did Delvani this morning, and um, tomorrow I'm probably going to be doing something China related because we're expecting a data dump, and the preliminaries look awful. Okay, well, I'll be watching that because my latest book here, the one that comes out in May, Red Sky Morning, is a uh, China focused. Now. Excellent. So, uh, you'll you'll recognize some of your uh, some of your your thoughts in there. You're even mentioned again, just like in uh, in True Believer, because the characters are talking. I love it. You get reference. <laughs> so, uh, but I want today. I wanted to talk about Iran um, sure. and stay focused instead of going all over the place. Kind of keep it to the Middle East, uh, Iranian influence in Jordan and Syria and in Iraq, and with what's going on in Israel and also Yemen, because people see so many news. Uh, whether it's a ticker at the bottom or something happens, we lost two SEALs boarding a ship. We had three uh, Army soldiers that were killed recently. And I think a lot of, of the American public is saying, what, what are we doing there? What, why did we have a small outpost in the, uh, the upper right-hand corner in, uh, in Jordan? What are those guys doing there? Um, so I wanted to get your, your thoughts on that. Um, but before we dive into those specifics, uh, a little background maybe on the geography of Iran and that impact, how that impacted their culture and history. And I know you cover in all your books right here, accidental superpower. If people have not read this, they should definitely do that. Absent superpower right here and disunited nations right here. Big fat around chapters. The latest right here, the end of the world, ah. yes, the beginning. Um, so <laughs> if you not read these, they should definitely pick all of them up. But um, I wonder if you could go into a little bit about that uh, geography and culture and how that's impacted uh, Iranian history and uh, even- Yeah, of course. So uh, Iranian culture is arguably the oldest contiguous culture in the world. They've had the fewest number of government changes of any society over the, the life of their existence. They're probably arguably only on their fifth governing system, which for 6,000 plus years is fairly impressive, I would argue. And the issue is that this is this is all mountains. Uh, not like sharp mountains like the Rockies uh, and not having lots of um, interconnections like the Appalachians, but you've got relatively high mountains with relatively large valleys and the valleys are allowed to develop on their own. And so Persopolis, which is where the Persians are ultimately from, was one of the bigger valleys. And what happened was they got a populace, populace enough, they were able to spill out of that to the next valleys, conquer the people there, and over the centuries, over the millennia, Persianize them. And this continued on and on and on and on and on until we get to the edge of the mountains. And then when you have a population surge, you go out and conquer the known universe. Uh, so it's a mountain people held together by the sinews of trade and intermarriage and a little bit of light genocide. And even now, in the 21st century, only about half of the population still considers themselves ethnic Persian. So if they continue at the rate they've been going, we're going to be in roughly the mid, oh, I don't know, 64th century by the time they finally finish the process. So what you do in that environment 
when you're not experiencing a population boom that allows you to conquer everybody is you try to just keep a lid on everything because you're literally occupying half of your own population. So Iran maintains today a roughly a million man army and one of the most aggressive intelligence systems in the world focused internally to make sure that the non-ethnic Persians, the Balochis, the Arabs, the Azeris uh, are always kept under the Iranian thumb, either by a degree of integration or a degree of oppression or some combination thereof. Now, for those of you who are not living in Iran, the problem here is you've got a million-man army and an intelligence system that's very good at suppressing dissent and rooting through sectarian minorities. So the same tools they use for domestic control can also be purposed for external influence. That's not their primary goal. And if push comes to shove, they'll all come home. Uh, but it does make Iran much more flexible as a strategic power than a mountain country has any reason to be. Normally, mountain countries, like whether it's Chechnya or Appalachia, are locked in on themselves, and they very rarely influence anything beyond their borders. Iran has figured out a governing model that allows it to do both. How did trade impact them over the year? How did they how did they trade with through those valleys, or was there any maritime traffic, or how did that come about? Well, we've got three big phases. Uh, phase one is all the internal stuff. When you've got all of these mountains, but a lot of interconnections among them, you do get a fairly vibrant trading culture. And if you go back to Byzantine times and early, earlier, the Romans traded with these guys, the Asians traded with these guys, the Arabs traded with these guys, they traded with one another. And it was one of the more culturally and economically sophisticated parts of the planet right through the Dark Ages. Then everyone realized that the Iranians were... Persians were taking a cut out of everything going through spice trade, and the Europeans figured out a way to do an end run around the entire region with deep water navigation, and the amount of money that was flowing through this zone crumpled. Now, that hit the Byzantine Empire just like it did the Iranians. Uh, it hit the Ottoman Turks, uh, you know, basically whatever time frame you're looking at, the powers of this area uh, got cut out completely. That didn't destroy Persia, but it definitely took away a lot of the free cash that was on offer. And then disaster struck and they found oil. And once they had a cash cow, uh, everything else withered. All of the things you see with a modern oil economy, um, the Dutch disease, the, the, the push of capital and labor to a very specific industry, to the gutting of everything else, that has happened in Iran just like it's happened in almost every other petroleum producer. And today, they are definitely the least advanced, uh, considering their own system and considering the wider world, that they have been in, I would argue, about 5,000 years uh, so a lot of this cultural sophistication that the Persians have been famous for since almost antiquity is gone. Hmm. Let's jump to the end of World War II then. Uh, Bretton Woods, because that, that features prominently in a lot of your, your books. Sure. It's influenced my novels as well. It's fascinating to dive into that history. But for people who aren't familiar with uh, Bretton Woods, um, and what did that mean uh, end of World War II, moving into the Cold War, how did we become uh, what you describe as economically trapped by by that uh, and this outdated security policy that we have? And then also, how did it contain the Soviet Union and lead well, this, up? This ties into Iran too, but you know, let's jump into the end of the story. So step one, uh, in the pre-World War II era, we had a series of empires that had their own naval power and an industrialized military system that would allow them to go out and bonk anyone on the head that they wanted to and develop their own militarized supply chains. So you had your, your imperial centers in places like France and Britain and Germany and Russia and Japan, uh, and they would have their own imperial systems. And these imperial systems did not trade with one another if they could help it but they divvied up the world among themselves. Uh, the only clashes we got is when the disputes among the empires got so robust that uh, military power was brought to bear. And that eventually gave us World War II, which tore them all down. At the end of the war, the Americans who had a continent to themselves and so really didn't see the need for an empire came in and said, you know, we are the deciding military here. We've got the only Navy that survived the war. So we're going to impose something different and try something new. We're going to patrol the global ocean so that anyone can go anywhere at any time without a military escort. We will basically be in an Imperial Navy for everyone if you fight on our side during the Cold War. And that gave us the military alliance that ultimately defeated the Soviet Union. And it gave us 
the economic structure that we know today as globalization. For the Americans, it was never an economic plan. It was a strategic plan, a military plan, and it worked phenomenally well. But when the Cold War ended, uh, we were left with a different sort of problem. Because during the Cold War, having this robust, militarized economic network that involved everyone but the Soviet Union gave us a lot of really clever and deep options. And it prevented the Soviet Union from exploiting the rules of the old imperial system because you always had the Americans and the Reliance Net there to block them economically and strategically. But in the post-Cold War system, where the Americans basically stopped asking for the security back scratch in exchange for the economic largesse, the world started diversifying and a lot of countries that were either brought in late to the system or never brought in at all were able to join. And that includes today, China and Russia. Uh, it's only since the Ukraine war that the Russians have kind of been kicked back outside of the system, but the Chinese are still reaping all of the benefits of globalization, but mm. no longer are on the American side in any sort of military way that they were in the late 70s and the 80s versus the Soviet Union. So it's become this very unstable structure mm. with the Americans kind of half-heartedly holding the ceiling up, but politically it's pretty clear that the Americans have largely moved on from it already. And since our economy was never really invested in that system, we have that option. Most other countries don't, which ironically brings us back into Iran. During the Cold War, the primary reason the U.S. was involved in the Middle East was for oil, but it was not for oil for the United States. Uh, until 73, the U.S. was a net exporter. And even after 73, as we became an importer, we still got most of our oil from Mexico, uh, Canada, and Venezuela. And that is true even when our oil imports became the world largest. But then the shale revolution happened. So, you know, we went a different direction. So we were involved in this region in order to make sure that our allies, most notably Germany and France and England and Japan and China, could function. And so we had this interesting situation through the late Cold War where the Soviet Union was still the obvious big bad and we were containing it economically and strategically wherever we could. But there was a pipsqueak power, Iran and the Persian Gulf, that all by itself, if the wrong things happened, could shut down half of globally traded oil. And if that had happened, the American strategic position, its entire alliance network would break in a day. So there's always been this visceral concern in the American mind about Iran, not because we don't, because we're scared of one specific country, but the implications of what Iranian action could mean for the entire alliance network. Now, we are in the United States in the process of bit by bit and in a very disorganized, very loud, very American manner, revisiting everything about our alliance structures and in light of China's rise, in light of the Russian resurgence, uh, in light of the Gaza war. And there are no clear decisions. I don't mean to suggest that this is an easy decision, but a lot of the strategic positioning that we've put out there as part of the war on terror no longer is achieving anything related to its original goal. But no one really wants to rip off the scap and pull the troops out either because of what might happen the next day. So there's a lot of ugly decisions that need to be made. And Iran's position on a number of issues in the Gaza situation is forcing the United States to consider some things probably faster than it would have under its own time frame. Whether that's a plus or a minus, of course, depends upon how you think this should shake out in the end. Um, jumping that's back was real quick. <laughs> jumping back to the end of World War II, um, was was everyone at Bretton Woods surprised that the uh, what was proposed by the United States, or were there uh, uh, inklings that, that something was going to be different? Yeah, you, you, you put aside the human carnage of World War II for a second, which was immense, and just the sheer humiliation of the European powers was massive. Because you know, here you have Germany and Britain and France that had determined the human condition for a large part of the last half millennia. And here their armies were gone, their navies were sunk, their economies were in ruins, and the Americans strutted and say, hey, I've got an idea. Um, 
And the Europeans thought as little culturally of the Americans back in 1945 as they do today. That has not changed. And so the idea that these upstarts not only hold all the cards, but can just impose a solution or their solution on the world was, in a word, galling. Uh, and so the assumption when everyone showed up, because they were basically summoned to Bretton Woods, uh, was that the Americans would say, okay, we're going to have a new global empire and we're in charge and we're going to put uh, consular generals in all of your ports and a, a part of all of your income is going to be coming to Washington and you guys are just going to have to suck it up. That's what everybody was expecting. And that's what they were expecting that they were going to have to accept because it was going to be the only offer there could be. And then the Americans come say, yeah, yeah, you know, we, we changed our mind. All of our military will be deployed to help you maintain your physical safety and independence and we will allow you to trade with anyone, anywhere, at any time. If in exchange, uh, you join our alliance against the power that wants to nuke you. Needless to say, people were a little bit flummoxed and surprised and kept waiting for the other shoe to drop. And, you know, we got to 1985 and the other shoe still hadn't dropped. Amazing. I want to read something here. I think it's, it's from uh, one of your books. I forget which one, but you write in the Bretton Woods era. Iran's position on the Persian Gulf empowers it. In a world in which oil isn't central to American planning, however, Iran's position on the wrong side of the Strait of Hormuz cripples it. Uh, could you talk a little bit more about that? Sure. It's a question of how soon the Americans kind of get to the logical conclusion of the shale revolution. So in 2004, the very, very start of the shale revolution, we were importing about 60% of our crude, and you can quibble with that number based on the definition of what oil is, but about that. Uh, and over the course of the next 20 years, uh, we went from the world's largest importer to the world's largest exporter. <laughs> Once you include things like refined product, which most data doesn't, we really need to do. The U.S. exports over 3 million barrels a day of refined product a day, in addition to about $5 million of oil and oil-like substances a day. So it's... Uh, the volume shift in two decades is largely unprecedented, really, in any industry in any era. And if, 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 if we move into a world where the Americans aren't all that concerned about global economic stability, then the obsession with the Middle East and the ability to get the crude out suddenly doesn't matter all that much. So in a world of Bretton Woods where keeping the alliance alive is everything, Iran had the kill switch. And in a world where U.S. shale frees the United States from that concern completely, Iran is a low to middle quality, low to middle volume oil producer who has degraded so much in its economic sophistication that they largely can't operate their own oil fields anymore. So you're looking at, over the course of the oil era, the greatest decline in, in relative cultural achievements in Iran of any country in any era. And the shale revolution provides the possibility of simply ending it completely. So if you're Persian and you have a sense of history, you've got to be just crushed already. And if the Americans really do move on, then it really is over. There. And when you hear sometimes these, you know, generals are are uh, interviewed on like 60 Minutes or something like that, they always ask the question, uh, "What keeps you up at night?" Type thing. And either it's uh, it's Iran, typically it's Iran, or it's 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 China. Typically, you know, sometimes it's it's something else, but most of the time it ends up in one of those two camps. Um, so when you look, choices, yes, yeah. When, when you look at uh, Iran, how does it? threaten the U.S. When those guys say that it keeps them up at night, are they thinking about the development of nuclear weapons, the proliferation of those weapons, the use of those weapons against Israel or other allies? Um, when they say that, how does so how does Iran threaten directly or indirectly? I mean, indirectly is pretty obvious, proxy groups and the things we're seeing now. But how does Iran directly threaten the United States or not threaten the United well, States? Well, that's an American choice. So if we decide we want to reinvent the Bretton Woods and the globalized system in some form, then oil will be part of that conversation and Iran is very much front and center. But if we move a different direction and decide we're going to be going more populist uh, and more nationalist, then oil, and especially interrupting oil, is more of an opportunity because every country that's an economic competitor to the United States is absolutely dependent on imported crude, period. So 
we're not there yet. And I'm not convinced 100% we're going to get there, although I think we're leaning in that direction. Trump clearly wants to take us into that direction. Biden is kind of like wishy-washy on it. But if we want to be the global determiner, the primacy, as we have since 1945, then the Middle East has to stay open for business and Iran is a potential threat. If we decide we are a major power who will largely keep to ourselves, but be perfectly willing to put our thumb on the scale to overturn any apple cart, then the Middle East is something where you want to be able to shoot it up every once in a while, but you don't need it functional. Now, there are obviously side effects of that second choice. Uh, If you deliberately stir the pot in the Middle East from time to time, shit blows up. Um, we haven't committed to that. But what is we're seeing now in the Biden administration into a far, 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 far lesser degree in Team Trump is a, the early stages of a conversation of what do we actually want? Now, we've tried to have this conversation before, back in 1992, when the wall fell and the Soviet Union fell apart and George Herbert Walker Bush tried to get us to have a conversation about the new world order and a thousand points of light and what we wanted the world to be for our children and grandchildren. And so, of course, we voted him out of office. It looks like we're now, 30 years later, starting to edge towards that conversation again. And I will never argue against the Americans having a conversation about their actual future. This is a good thing. Um but it's not nearly as broad-based and it's not being led by two gentlemen who I ever really thought of as strategic thinkers. So, you know, I'll I'll take my victory where I can. Um, If we decide for option two, then there's nothing that Iran can do directly to hurt us at all. In fact, there might be an argument to be made that an Iran that is actively scrambling the Middle East is something in our best interest because it prevents oil from getting to China, for example. Uh, but that's a very harsh, cold argument that we haven't made yet. Now, demographics in Iran. So we, we talk about it with, with Russia. You essentially <laughs> the invasion of Ukraine to well, to the year for sure, but almost to the day. You know, I like to like to take it. I mean, it was and it was 2014, I think, that uh, the external superpower came out where you, you wrote that. Um, so we, we talk about it in that context. We talk about populations with with China and you talk about that on your YouTube. YouTube channel and what's uh, what is what that means for China's future. Um, how, what does Iran look like as far as their- uh, not nearly as bad. Most of the developing countries are not as bad as the richer countries, especially ones that have gone through massive uh, urbanization. Uh, ironically, because of the oil that has destroyed so much else of Iranian culture, uh, it's allowed the government to pay the population to not riot. And that means that the industrialization impulse that we saw as a lot of other countries industrialized, I'm sorry, the urbanization impulse that occurred as most other countries urbanized words, the urbanization impulse that occurred as most other countries industrialized, there we go, uh, never really happened in Iran. So it's a lot more rural. And when you're rural, you generally have more kids because you need the labor for the farms. Um, There was, however, a massive baby bust that occurred when the Shah fell because you got a whole generation of people who had kind of quasi-modernized, who were the more sophisticated of the cultural members of society, who just saw everything that they thought their culture represented die in a day and were very depressed. Depressed people don't have kids or they just left, which is one of the reasons why Los Angeles is so Persian. Um, And so you've got more a traditional pyramid that comes down until you get to the people who were born in 1989. And then there's this big gouge that goes in and it's only recently started to come out again. Now that's not terminal, but it does kind of underline some very clear cultural breaks demographically within society, because now we have all these people who were born after 1990 who have grown up in the system, uh, knowing about lack of economic growth and knowing about tyranny and knowing about oppression and having a phone so they know what the rest of the world is like. And so there's this youthful upsurge that's coming up that is going to challenge the clerical regime way too soon to know if they're going to challenge it effectively. But they definitely have the numbers on their side in the long term to be an ongoing part of the political conversation. Now, now getting back to what I wanted to talk to you about um, with that foundation built, uh, Syria, uh, Iraq, 
Jordan, Yemen, and Iranian influence in those countries. So at the end of January, we have three U.S. Army soldiers that are killed at an outpost in Jordan. Uh, Iran, of course, denies any involvement. Uh, Biden administration vows to hold those responsible for they have the same language that we've had for the last since the you know the early '80s. We vow to uh, hold those responsible for the attack to account. Um, so here is where they are. There's Tower Twenty Two in Jordan for those that are watching. <laughs> Middle so, of nowhere. Exactly. So a little plot right there. So that is the northeastern corner of Jordan. And then here's the base right there. So like, look at that base right there. Um, it's very familiar to some places that I have been. But I think a lot of Americans are wondering, what are we doing in the upper right-hand corner of Jordan? Um, and what are we doing up there in the upper right-hand corner of Jordan? In a simple phrase, it's the Islamic State or ISIS, if you prefer. Uh, in the aftermath or the later decade of the war on terror, the decision was made that ISIS was an existential threat for any number of reasons, either direct terror attacks or to potential allies, and it needed to be beaten down, destroyed, and prevented from ever coming back. And so the United States maintains a network of a few dozen small bases throughout the zones, either on the edges of our other friendly forces or really out in the middle of nowhere like this one, um, where we can monitor ISIS and potentially uh, whack-a-mole it as necessary. Now, the thing to keep in mind about ISIS is that it is not the first kooky militant group to boil up out of this very specific geography. It has happened on and on again every generation or two for roughly the last 2,500 years. Um, and the issue is the geography more than the people, because if you go to the east, you'll hit Mesopotamia, which is one of the great concentrations of civilization. If you go to southwest, you hit the oasis cities of Damascus and the oasis cities of Hamad and Hamah, which have always been a corridor of civilization. And if you go to the north, you'll hit Anatolia, which has always been home to something, whether it's the Eastern Roman Empire, the Byzantines or the Turks. This part in the middle, though. We think of it as the Fertile Crescent. That's what we learned in school. But it has never been a place that anyone has wanted to be. So you had your initial civilization in Mesopotamia. People followed the river up through the Crescent and the Euphrates and then came down on the Levant. And Levant and Mesopotamia have always had populations 20, 30, 40 times as much as the stuff in the middle. Because where the Euphrates cuts through the Syrian desert, it cuts a little deeper. It's not an alluvial river. And so the widest point of most of that corridor where you can move water and irrigate is only about like six to 10 miles. So you've got this very thin green strip going through a zone that's completely surrounded by hard desert. And so it's always been difficult for the major powers, Mesopotamia, Mesopotamia, the Damascus Corridor, Anatolia, to penetrate into this area in a sustained way. It's not that they can't do it. It's actually easy to get there, but you can't build anything that pays for itself. So all three of these zones focus on their own civilizational heartlands where the bang for the buck is much more significant, and they leave this area to fester. Yep. Well... Every once in a while, a group, ISIS-themed, boils up out of it and eventually causes enough trouble that one of those three groups on the edges burns through here, kills everybody, and the cycle starts over. What happened during the war on terror is we removed Mesopotamia from the equation. Syria had a civil war, removing them from the equation, and the Turks had not yet emerged from their century-long self isolation in the aftermath of World War One. So the three powers that would normally rush into this area and just wipe it clean were out for the count. And so ISIS grew. They were able to establish themselves. They were able to uh, build a tax base. And then they looked north and then they looked southwest and they looked east and they realized, north, let's not mess with the Turks. That's too much trouble. But Syria is in a civil war. That sounds like fun. And so they went and conquered some outlying communities. And they look over at the American occupation in the east. And the Americans were starting to leave, leaving behind an Iraqi government that was, um, let's just use the word, challenged. And so they went and they took over Mosul briefly uh, and Rafah. Uh, and so they became a power because the traditional powers that had destroyed them just weren't available. Well, that's not the environment we're in today. Uh, Iraq has many, many, many problems, but it is once again a functional government. 
In Syria, the civil war is winding down, and the Turks are once again starting to venture out beyond the hard borders of their nation state in order to inject influence. And so ISIS today is a non-factor. It has a few little brush fires of bubble bubble every once in a while. And the American military presence is just a lingering impact that's uh, designed to serve as a tripwire function. And it's very, 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 very rare that the U.S. forces in the area actually ever leave their bases anymore. They do a little bit of training with friendly forces in the area and a lot of intel monitoring. And that's about it. So from an ISIS point of view, this mission is pretty much over. And you could actually argue that the U.S. military operation in Syria now has become the single largest factor encouraging the Assad government of Syria to come out of its shell because we've blocked the other two checks on Syrian power completely. Uh, so, yes, the United States backer of Assad, that's where we are today. No one really wants to end the mission because they're afraid they'll be blamed for what might happen the next day, which will either be ISIS doing something or someone going in and killing everyone in the area, which is, you know, the historical norm. So it's ugly one way or another. This special episode of the Danger Close podcast is brought to you by Red Sky Morning, the seventh novel in the James Reese Terminal List series. It is coming in hot on May 14th at hardcover, ebook, and audiobook. Go to officialjackcar.com to pre order your copy today. And that attack at the end of January that killed three U.S. soldiers and also wounded 47. I mean, that's a lot. And then it seems like we pretty much just move on from there. That's a lot of people to be wounded in a singular, a single attack in the middle of nowhere, Jordan. Yeah. Uh, and then early February, we strike back. Uh, there's a press conference. There's some very tough talk. Um, it says here, total U.S. hit 85 targets, seven sites in Iraq and Syria on Friday, followed by a joint operation on Saturday that hit 36 Houthi targets at 13 sites in Yemen. Um so question, what did, are those type of attacks do to these movements? Um, we have 20 years, essentially, of data and experience now in Iraq and Afghanistan to look at. Um, do we do they really degrade and destroy? Do they help recruit more people to the cause? Um, it seems like we've seen this show before. We have. Uh, so when the United States basically made the decision to kind of go quiet with all of its bases in this area, the Iranian militias just saw a perfect target. The Americans don't leave their base. They don't shoot back. So you lob in an artillery shell, you lob in a mortar, you lob in a drone. And even if you don't hit anything, even if you don't kill anyone, it's a great PR issue for recruiting. And then if you do hit someone, well, it's great for recruiting, but then the Americans will shoot back, which is what we're doing right now. From the Iranian point of view, this is this is just lovely because <laughs> all of these groups are disposable. I mean, this isn't Hezbollah where the Iranians have really invested a lot of cash into the future of the organization. These are desert runners in an area where they're fighting ISIS. And honestly, it's on a no man's land that doesn't even border Persia's, Persia's sphere of influence. So if every single one of them were to die tomorrow, the Iranians are like, yeah. No skin of our ass didn't really cost us very much. This is not a real group. So you use them indirectly. They, they probably would have attacked American forces for their own reasons, but you use them indirectly to do it as well. Uh, and there's just, the risk is very, very, very low. And the payout is decent. For the American point of view, it's like punching a pillow. Uh, because unless you're going to go in there with 250,000 people and kill everyone, this is just going to happen again in a week, in a month, in a year. And that is clearly Americans' preferred way not to operate. Uh, so that leaves us dangling at the end of vulnerable supply chains being supported by countries like Turkey who don't think we should be there in the first place in order to achieve something that has already been achieved and is actually working against the interests of what we say we want to achieve in Syria. So this is part of that whole reassessment of everything mm -hmm that the United States is bit by bit moving towards. The problem is now that we've lost three service people, no one wants to be seen pulling the plug on an operation where you're not on a high point, but you know, newsflash people, there will never be a high point here. There is no version of this where we make this area functional. We've spent a couple trillion dollars and a few thousand lives and 20 years trying to make Iraq look like Wisconsin. 
And this chunk of territory, eastern Jordan, western Iraq, eastern Syria, this has been among the least economically viable parts of the planet since the dawn of human history. And a few thousand troops who don't leave their bases is not going to change that. Yeah. And there was another another uh, statement here. At the same time, Yemen's Houthi movement has been firing missiles and drones into the Red Sea, targeting commercial shipping vessels and coming within shooting distance of U.S. Navy ships. Um, so the Iranian connection to the Houthi rebel group, um, what is that? And then why are they firing on commercial ships and getting close to U.S. Navy vessels? Provocation or try uh, what? What are they? What's 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 going on there? Well, let's start with the Houthis. Um, I'd argue that the Houthis are overall among the least effective militant groups on the planet, and yeah. the only reason that we think of them is because they're in a zone where every once in a while they've shot some missiles into, say, the Saudi uh, oil infrastructure, which has you know raised a few alarms. Uh, the water table there it has basically been destroyed, and the single largest cash crop in the country is something called cot, which is a mild hallucinogenic, which a lot of Houthi forces are kind of high on most of the day. So don't go looking for too much logic in their actions. Uh, and they're the perfect disposable proxy for the Iranians as, as a result. You throw them some weapons, they'll shoot them off. Maybe they'll even shoot them at someone from time to time. These are not capable forces. But you give them the right time of equipment, you know, the anti-ship missile, and they can cause a lot of havoc in the Red Sea. Nominally, the Houthis are doing this in solidarity with Palestinians, but I would argue there's probably not a single Houthi on the planet who has ever met a single Palestinian. Uh, you know, these are these are two of the most isolated populations in existence, uh, and they are just literally trying to stir shit up. From the Iranian point of view, this is another thing where they're like steps removed. And anything that blows up is in Yemen and not in Iran. And so the risk is very, very, very low. And just like Eastern Syria, the only way to fix this would be to send in a quarter of a million troops and physically take the place over. And the Americans are a hard pass on that. So again, we're in this holding pattern where the United States can't really decide what its global strategy is. And until it can do that, it can't really decide what its regional Middle East strategy is. So we're trying to keep our fingers in the pot without getting overcommitted, and it's awkward. And there is no way to explain that to the American population without making yourself look like a chump. So it's not getting explained. Yeah. Yeah, Yemen's in a very interesting position strategically. Um, here's, a, here's a U.S. statement. Recent one. The United States does not see conflict with Iran or the broader Middle East. But as President Biden has made clear, we will not hesitate to defend our people and hold responsible all those who harm Americans at a time and place of our choosing. That began tonight, but will not end tonight. Right. And that's basically saying we're going to target the trigger men and we're not going to go up the chain. So at the moment, there's an understanding between Iran and the United States that there's a fuzzy border that if you don't cross this, the United States isn't going to come for you in the night. We're not there yet. Doesn't mean that we will ever get there, but uh, we're not there yet. I've seen multiple politicians uh, talking about you have to go into Iran, you have to bomb Iran, you have to bomb there. There, uh, I think there's a couple larger ports that are uh, that are important to them that they that they bring up from time to time. Um, what would that do if uh, the United States escalated things at the, to that level? So the uh, the political elite in China is one person, and if something were to happen to Hu Jintao, the system would disintegrate. The political system in Russia is 130 people. So a, a plane crash or a bad flu season and you wipe out the Russian government. The Iranian system is a theocracy with well over 10,000 mullahs in the political system. Kill half of them, you haven't fun functionally changed anything. So there's a reason why Persia has been around for 6,000 years. It's behind a series of mountain ramparts. Invasion isn't functionally impossible. It's really only been done twice in its history, and it survived both of them. Uh, but if the goal is to bleed Iran and make them notice, they actually hit the supply chain that allows them to do what they do in places like Syria and Lebanon and Yemen. There, there's a simple target. It's called Karg Island, and that's where over 90% of their oil is exported. It's infrastructure that predates the Islamic Revolution in 1999, a series of pipes that go under the coast 
uh, under the Persian Gulf to get to this island. There's no bridge. And if you destroy the, the loading tanks and the storage tanks and the loading terminals, it would take the Iranians a minimum of five years to rebuild them by themselves, probably a lot longer because of that cultural decay. They don't have the ability to do this kind of construction on their own. Uh, so there is a solution here, but you don't do that unless you have decided that, yeah, we're done with the world, which means we're done with oil. And if you're going to go out and eliminate an oil supplier to the world, that means you're no longer interested in the global oil market. And we may get there, but I doubt we would get there in an election year. Interesting. And bringing it over to uh, another area, obviously, Gaza, Israel, uh, Israel Defense Forces struck Hezbollah sites in southern Lebanon uh, with artillery and fighter jets. Um, what does that mean for that conflict there? And I bring it up because of the connection from with Hezbollah to, to Iran, obviously. Um, what are the things looking like when we think about Gaza, West Bank, and then we think about the North um, uh, with Lebanon and, uh, and moving outside those borders to strike at targets that have direct connections to Iran? So we've got two trends here that are not in alignment at all. Uh, let's start with the Iranians. Um, the Iranians see Hezbollah as much, much, much more uh, than any of their other assets. They, they considered Hamas animals and disposable, and they're not providing any meaningful support. They never honestly did supply them with much meaningful support. Even the most aggressive estimates I've seen have never topped a half a billion dollars over the last 30 years. Jump change. Uh, they also don't consider them cultural invalids like the Houthis. Uh, now, they're Arabs, so they still look down on them because the Persians like to look down on everybody. But Hezbollah is part of the axis with Damascus, something that the Iranians have been investing time and resources and training and money and ammo and intelligence in for 40 years. And they don't want to give it up because it is a functional force militarily and paramilitarily, and it is part of the Lebanese government. So they consider it kind of the crown jewel in their network of assets. As for Hezbollah, they have no love lost for the Palestinians at all. Uh, when Israel, in a series of conflicts, basically pushed the Palestinians out of what is Israel today, some ended up in the West Bank, some ended up in the Gaza, some ended up in Lebanon living in camps. And they've never been integrated into Lebanese society, and they have their own militant groups, and they generate their own problems for Lebanon. We just don't hear about that in the West because Lebanon is a country that we really don't care about very much. Well, Hezbollah, the leader, um, Nasrallah, uh, gave this great press conference in the first month of the Gaza conflict when he's like, you know, death to Israel, we will fight to the last man to avenge our brothers in Gaza. And by fight to the last man, what I mean is we will fight to the end of this press conference. And that was it. They, they honestly have no interest in what happens in Gaza whatsoever. And so anything cooking off in the uh, in the southern Lebanese zone has been almost for show. And remember, there's rockets that go over this border on a regular basis. We haven't seen a really meaningful uptick in that activity. And in fact, in the first month, we saw it slow down quite a bit. So Israel, I'm sorry, Iran is not looking for a fight on this front and Hezbollah is not looking for a fight on this front, or at least not any more than normal. I don't mean to suggest that these are a bunch of Wisconsin suburban housewives. These are not nice people, but their goal isn't to push the Jews into the sea today. Um, that's phase one. Phase two is Israel is probably getting pretty close to being done with Gaza. Uh, Hamas has been severely degraded. The Saudis and the Egyptians are quietly quietly, quietly collaborating on rooting out the financial links that allow it to function. And I can see that by the end of this year, maybe even by the end of uh, the spring, that functionally it will no longer exist. And all you'll be left with is a bunch of talking heads in the UAE who will absolutely be assassinated. Uh, and that'll be that for Hamas. Now, this doesn't solve the overall Palestinian issue, but it does end this chapter. And at that point, the question is politically what happens in Jerusalem. Because we've got, we've got a government who, to be perfectly blunt, is completely incompetent. Uh, roughly half of the government are controlled by ultra-Orthodox people who say they're hawks and say they're national security uh, professionals and have never served in the government in any meaningful context before they became cabinet officials. 
And they've got been brought in by Netanyahu, who has twisted the Israeli system more and more and more and more and made it less and less, less professional and has basically ignored all of the warnings that this was going to happen. Uh, if you're Netanyahu, you realize that there's this huge groundswell of opposition to you personally from the center of the political spectrum and even the moderate right, the people who normally serve in the military. So there is going to be a reckoning, but there is not going to be a reckoning until such time as this war concludes, which means Netanyahu has a vested interest in the war not concluding. So if he says, okay, Hamas is done, let's take care of the ne next threat, and that's Hezbollah, well, shit. Uh, we've gone from a situation where the Israelis were largely ignoring the issues on their borders to maybe now one where they're going to deliberately inflame them because of the interests of one specific person. Uh, it's too soon to know if that's how it's going to go, but the people in your cabinet who would normally be checks on this are the ones who would also see their political careers end if it if you had elections. So there's this general assessment, it seems to be across the Israeli cabinet that we need to keep this rolling for our own reasons. And Wait. you can't go into Southern Lebanon like you can go into Gaza. Gaza is isolated. It's basically a prison camp. And yes, there are tunnels, but there aren't like multi-story layers of them. And Hezbollah is an order of magnitude more competent than Hamas and is well-wired internationally to get support. Interesting. All right. I have my eye on the clock here. So I want to ask you uh, one question on China while I have sure, you. Sure. Um, and so you, for the most part, in your the videos that I've seen on your YouTube channel or things that I've read, you don't seem too worried about China invading Taiwan. But uh, I think it's safer to say I don't really know. I certainly don't see that as something that they're dead set on. Okay. Uh, but you have mentioned a darker scenario in which China does so to move into the next era of Chinese history. Um, I think you, so you say choosing the time and place of a war, even if you think you're going to lose, even if you know it's going to result in the deaths of half your countrymen, if it allows you to command the narrative of the future, the CCP might be able to rule into the next era of Chinese history. And that might be a compelling reason to launch a war that you know will destroy you. Um, can you talk about that a little bit? Sure. Let's start by mentioning that uh, China now is a one-man show. Chairman Xi has completely gutted the system of any decision maker. So anytime you evaluate the concept of a war, you have to look at it from his personal view and not the Chinese national view, because those are two very different things. Uh, and the Chinese national view is now completely, completely slave to what Xi thinks. And Xi has destroyed the bureaucracy's capacity to transmit and gather information. So he is making decisions in the dark a lot. And now he's working on gutting the political power and the economic power of the military as well. So even if this goes like a perfect reform professionalization system, it's going to be 20 years before the Chinese military is ready to function in a way that we would consider a military functioning. It has a lot more in common probably with the Russian military right now than any overarching fear. So that's kind of to the side. Um, two big problems. Number one, China is the most wired country in the world in terms of its international involvement. It imports almost all of its raw materials. It imports almost all of its energy. It's the world's largest importer of food, and it imports 80% of the inputs it needs to grow its own food. So if something happens to the international system, like, I don't know, the United States deciding that it's done maintaining the international system, it's over. And you get a deindustrialization collapse and a famine that kills half the population without a shot being fired. Or there's a demographic problem. Uh, 45 years after the one-child policy and combined with the world's fastest ever urbanization program, the average birth per woman has now dropped below one, which means we are looking at the end of China being able to maintain any sort of workforce or consumption base in less than 10 years, meaning that the Chinese system in its current form will collapse and will probably result in an industrial deindustrialization collapse that also generates a famine that kills half the population. These are now the base scenarios for the Chinese system. That assumes nothing goes wrong. That assumes that Xi doesn't miscalculate. That assumes no uprising, no wars, no international trade dispute. And all of these are on dock. So we are looking at the end of the CCP-run Chinese system soon. 
five years ago, she knew this. I don't think he realized just how deep the trajectory was. I don't think any of us did. And the information that's come out just in the last two weeks is truly damning. Uh, we've seen their birth rate now by their own data drop by more in the last six years and what happened to the Jews of Europe during the Holocaust. So national death is upon us. But this isn't the first time China's died. By my math, this is the 28th civilizational collapse. We think of China as being around forever, but China, the geography has. China as a government rises, over-centralizes, spins apart, collapse. A third of the population dies and they start over. The difference this time is everyone's moved from the farm to the city and there aren't enough farmers. So a 50% drop in the population is probably over-optimistic. Now, if you're the CCP and you actually have a grip on the situation, which is not clear anymore if they do, Betting that there's going to be a 29th option on the other side of these dark days plays to history. It might not be right this time around because the fall is going to be a lot worse, but you're not going to bet that your country is going to disappear from history completely. And if you can pre-position what's left of the CCE to rule that new incarnation, now's the time to come up with a clever plan. And so if you can command the narrative of a war, or even if you know you're going to lose, it's worth some serious consideration. If you know you're going to lose half the population anyway, you might as well make some hay of it. And you think that's an unlikely scenario? I don't want to say it's unlikely or not because it requires a degree of inhuman thinking I'm not comfortable with. And more importantly, it has to come from one person who's riding this tiger into the ground. And knowing what Xi thinks is now impossible because he doesn't have conversations with anyone. So we could station a CIA asset five feet away from him from now until the end of time. And we'd have no idea what the plans are until they were actually issued. He has no confidence. He's either killed them all, pushed them out of government, arrested them, exiled them. They're gone. He's not surrounded by yes men. Yes men speak. He's surrounded by silent men. And when you say you're uncomfortable thinking through that type of a scenario, is that because of the amoral aspects of it? Well, it's the amoral aspects of it. And just think what step two is. If this is the decision, if this, this is something that makes the cultural revolution look ethical, mm-hmm. you know, the deliberate destruction of a half a billion plus people in order for the thin reed of hope that 30 years from now, your ideological descendants might, might, might be in charge. That requires a combination of brutality and hope that usually don't coexist in the same mind. All right. Well, I have your two last general questions here. Uh, You write that more than war or disease, famine is the ultimate country. God, you're getting all the happy questions. (laughs) I I end on a happy one. Yeah. Uh, What is the next 50 years of Food shortages look like. We've talked about it a little bit with China, but uh, for the rest of the world, how does that impact the rest of the world? Sure. It's ultimately a supply chain issue that's causing it. So um, if, if you're going to build, I don't know, a refrigerator and you can't get the compressor into the last second, you know, you're just left with the paperweight, but then you plug in the compressor, even if it's a year later and you have a refrigerator. It's not how food production works. You have to have the tractor available, fueled and ready to go during planting season and harvest season. You have to have the finance ready before planting season so you can afford the seed, which has its own supply chain that has to be ready by February. You're not going to be able to plant in March and April. Uh, Fertilizer has to go on a specific time. Pesticide has to go on a specific time. The labor for harvest and processing has to be available at a specific time. And if every single one of those pieces is not in place in the perfect time, it all falls apart and you don't have a harvest. And you don't wait a month or two months for it to come together. You have to wait a minimum until the next planting season. So it is by far the most vulnerable economic sector to disruptions. You break down manufacturing from, say, a China break, there goes most of the world's agricultural equipment. You have a problem with, say, the Houthis in the Red Sea or the Iranians in the Persian Gulf, there goes the fuel. You have a problem with the Russians, there goes the potash. You have a problem with the global natural gas sector, there goes the nitrogen fertilizer, and on and on and on and on. So we're probably looking at only about roughly one-third of the world's agricultural supply chain systems being low-risk to risk-free. 
And most of that is Anglo-America with Mexico helping out with some of the manufacturing. So in North America, we look pretty good. Everywhere else looks pretty fucked. And the China, the Chinese system is by far of the most concerned because they're the biggest importer of most of the things that allow them to grow the food anyway. So rebuilding the supply chains to feed the 5 billion people that don't have reliable supply chains is going to take longer than the 5 billion people are going to have. And the places I'm most worried about from a production point of view are Brazil, which has the lowest quality agricultural land of any of the major producing zones and produces very, very few of the inputs itself. And China, where they've plowed under their good land for urbanization, and what's left is the most input-intensive uh, agricultural zones we have. So that's on the input side. On the outputs, I'm sorry, that's on the uh, production side. On the consumption side, people needing to eat, China, 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 China. There, there's no way we get out of this uh, this half century with more than a billion Chinese. Um, I'd be of a secondary concern on South Asia. The Indians are fairly capable. They produce some of their own fertilizer and they haven't industrialized to the degree that a lot of other countries have. So there are a lot of subsistence farmers out there who won't starve. Pakistan though, Bangladesh, Sri Lanka, those all look really ugly. The Middle East imports most of its inputs and most of its food. That's really ugly. Um, so those three regions in, I'd probably switch the order, China, Middle East, South Asia. Uh, those, that's where we're going to feel the pain the most. And I'd be very surprised if we make it to 2050 with only a billion fewer people than we have now. Well, I have one more question, but I always appreciate your insights because they're, they're so unique. No one else really approaches, um, the study of geopolitics through your lens. It's very, very unique and insightful. And I sincerely appreciate, uh, you doing what you, what you do and being brave enough to just say what you think out there. I don't know how you, uh, uh, you, uh, I don't know, I guess you don't worry about, uh, all the attacks that are going to come because you're, you're not waiting, but, uh, but I appreciate you taking, taking swings because a lot of people wouldn't do that. A lot of people, uh, when they're looking at China, when you're looking at, when you're predicting wars, essentially, um, mm -hmm. future and not 50 years when you're like, doesn't matter what you predicted back here. No one's going to remember it, but tomorrow essentially, yeah. or a year from now, I mean, those are big swings and, uh, and you're not afraid to, to take those based on your, your analysis and your insights and your background and your experience. So I appreciate you doing that and sharing it with, with all of us. Um, but considering the things that you do study, that's, uh, sometimes can be pretty dark. And we talked about a few of those today. Um, you still consider yourself an optimist and you stay fairly optimistic about the future. So what gives you hope? Uh, well, let me give you two things. Number one, let's assume that everything I'm predicting happens and it's worse. Uh, North America still looks pretty good. And what allowed the world to come out of the dark ages ultimately was that we had a few Arab cities who served as repositories for all the knowledge of the Roman era that had come before. And so when the world was ready for that information was there and we could pick up where we left off. Now we lost almost a millennia of history to that. It was awful. Um, the United States is going to be serving that role, but without degrading. So the U.S. will still be pushing the frontiers of knowledge while the rest of the world resets. And so while that is hideous and damaging and depressing, we're not looking at a significant quantum leap back in the human condition that we then have to claw our way back from. It's like when 30, 50 years we get on the other side of this demographic transformation and we start to reindustrialize and scale, uh, the United States will be there with a new generation of technology that should make it all cheaper, easier, faster, cleaner, and better. So that's the worst case scenario. I can live with that. A little bit better case scenario, Ukraine. This war should not still be happening. It should have been over a year and a half ago. And yet here we are, even with all the drama in Congress, the Ukrainians are still fighting. NATO has come together in a way that I didn't think was possible. And the West as a unit is more united than it has ever been in human history. We are, to a certain degree, raging against the dying of the light. And it's entirely possible that now another entire region will be joining North America during that interregnum until we figure out what's next. And the more people who are brought along, the more countries that are brought along, the shorter we'll be in the dark. 
and the brighter the light will be on the other side. I have been pleasantly surprised by any number of developments in the last three years. I, I hope we have more of them. Well, that's a good way to end it. And I want to thank you so much for taking the time. I know how busy you are. I can imagine how how much data you have to pour over and where you're- All of it. I mean, it's, it's <laughs> incredible. Uh, and where can people find you now? I know you're not on X formula Twitter anymore. You left that, but it's- We're only, right. We're only using it? Twitter as a distribution channel for the newsletter, but the easiest way to sign up for that is zion.com slash newsletter. So Z-E-I-H-A-N.com slash newsletter. It is free. I will never share your data with anyone. Wonderful. Uh, and and also, yeah, YouTube channels, is it uh, uh, Zion on politics or what? what is the- uh, you just search for Peter Zion. That's the fastest way. way to do it. Books right here. Highly recommend all of these. Uh, absolutely fascinating. Everyone should read them as their foundation, amongst other things, to make good decisions going forward. And thank you again for everything. And thank you for, for taking those swings. I sure appreciate it. My pleasure. All right, man. Take care. Thank you for tuning in to the Danger Close podcast. You can find more about Peter Zion at Zion, that's Z-E-I-H-A-N dot com and on YouTube, Zion on Politics. You can find me at Jack Carr USA on the social channels, officialjackcar.com. That is the website. Click on shop in the upper right-hand corner for the merch. And if you enjoyed this conversation, be sure to leave a five-star rating and review wherever you get your podcasts. Until the next time, take care out there. Stay safe. Be strong. Keep fighting. Think you know James Reese? Think again. Red Sky Morning is available on May 14th in hardcover ebook and audiobook. Everywhere books are sold. Will there be blood? Count on it.